I thought about all the letters that my dad made me type up for him when I was barely old enough to spell, all the times I had to use my, quote, professional voice with customer service when I was only in junior high, how quickly I had to learn how to read a bank statement or claim adjustment form because my parents needed help understanding them. Yes, it was true that my father and I weren't close, that I'd literally never had a voluntary heart-to-heart with him in my entire life, that there were times when I hated having to be his translator. But as the brutalization of Asian immigrants continued to skyrocket, it seemed that all of these moments specifically equipped me for this challenge, that my parents needed me to brandish my English words like swords, not just to defend them, but to reveal them, to throw off the cloak the world had thrown over them in its rush to hide all the things that made them different, and at the same time, the things that made them human their struggles, their pain, their grief. To take everything I'd ever felt, everything I'd learned about being different, about having to translate not just those letters, but the entire fucking world for them, and make them safe. That was the reminder I needed to give myself after the Atlanta shootings on just why I started sharing the stories of my family on The Korean Vegan, a call to arms not just to myself, but to anyone who might feel compelled to protect their immigrant parents. And this is The Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. This week, we're going to talk about language barriers. I grew up in a household divided by language. My grandmother spoke Korean, I spoke English, and my parents spoke varying degrees of both. I've always wondered what it would have been like to grow up in a family that spoke the same language. Would my childhood have been easier? Would I be closer with my parents? Would I have done better, or maybe even worse, at school? While linguistic psychology certainly provides insight into these types of questions, as is often the case, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to this issue, and my story is, I dare say, both unique but relatable, whether you spoke one language at home or not. So, without further ado, let's get into it. On the morning of June 25, 1950, North Korean forces began shelling the westernmost tip of the 38th parallel, Ongjin, a peninsula shaped like a craggy hand darting south into the Yellow Sea, was technically below the parallel and therefore should have been safely outside the reach of the Korean People's Army, what the North Korean military called itself. But the KPA was determined to collect Kangyeong, a small gem wedged between two stubby fingers of the peninsula, and thus a crimson flare cut through the moonlit sky shrouding the squat home scattered across the tiny villages along the jagged southern edge of Ongjin. And the people of Ongjin, known best for their medicinal teas and ability to withstand long hours in the region's iron-rich mines, 
woke up to a hailstorm of artillery and the grating vibration of Soviet tanks. My mother was one of them. She was less than a year old. Amid the chaos, my grandparents heard that the promise of safety lay along the coast, and so they set out on foot with whatever they could carry towards the sea, leaving behind thick columns of smoke. With two infants to carry, very little water and food, my grandparents took several days to find their way to the beach. But sure enough, they were met with the broad hull of a ship marked with letters they couldn't read, the pandemonium of words they'd never heard before, the crushing roar of an angry tide as the sea hurled itself at the crowded shore. In my grandmother's arms, an infant, shrieking with hunger, caused no one to bat an eye. No one who spoke Korean could tell them where the ship was headed. No one who spoke Korean could tell them how long it would take to get to their final destination. No one who spoke Korean could tell them whether there was any food and water on board. So my grandparents let themselves be herded onto the deck. Without knowing for how much longer they'd be forced to watch their daughter starve to death, they concluded that the most loving thing they could do for her was to end her suffering, to end her life. As the ship eventually pulled away from the only home they'd ever known, my grandparents climbed up to the uppermost deck, where there were far fewer people. They carried my mother towards the rail, peered down at the cold black water dozens of feet below them. My grandfather began to pry my mother from my grandmother's arms, but Hermione wasn't quite ready to do this thing they'd agreed to do, however sensible it sounded when her husband explained the alternative. She pulled her girl closer to her, pressed the rough side of her face to her babies, until she was convulsing as violently as her daughter. The commotion drew notice, Two soldiers, garbed in dark fatigues, their rifles slung over their shoulders, approached. Perhaps they wanted to help. Perhaps they wanted the small family to step away from the rail. Perhaps they were merely curious. It didn't really matter, since they couldn't say anything my grandparents would ever understand. It's up for debate whether there existed words in any language that could adequately describe my grandparents' anguish and fear. But again, it didn't matter since they didn't speak the one language that would make an impression. A fresh wave of wails peeled from my mother's angry red mouth. Maybe there's something primal about a hungry baby, a pitch to starvation that is so singularly universal that it transcends speech, it obviates the need for words. One of the GIs reached into the deep pockets of his uniform and pulled out a bar wrapped in dark paper glittering with Roman letters. H-E-R-S-H-E-Y. Nearly three decades later, Amma would tell me that Hershey bar saved my life. She spoke in perfect American English. Over 4,000 years before my grandparents nearly killed my mother, a similarly chaotic scene broke out in Babylon, the capital city of the Empire of Babylonia. The Babylonians were determined to erect a tower, one that would reach into the heavens and protect them in the case of another great flood. 
but this angered God, who viewed the Babylonians' innovation as an act of defiance. He struck down the tower before it was completed, and he cursed them all with different tongues. Thus, though everyone woke up that morning speaking the same language, they went to bed that night, not being able to understand their neighbors, their friends, and maybe even their children. According to the Bible, this is why my mother nearly died before she turned one, and why my parents and I have struggled to see eye to eye our entire lives. The first language I remember speaking belonged to my grandmother's. We called my maternal grandmother Sol Halmoni when my father's mother came to live with us so we could distinguish the two grandmothers. My mother's family ultimately ended up in Seoul. Sol Harmonie was my first playmate, my first best friend, my first everything, and therefore it only made sense that she would gift me with all of my first words. Amma for a mother, Hamoni for a grandmother, Banana for banana. My parents too spoke only Korean inside our home, and therefore for the first three years of my life I spoke what my mom describes now as beautiful Korean learning to build bridges effortlessly between myself and the only others in my life that made any difference. My grandmothers, grandfather, mother, father, and auntie, my brother, hadn't arrived on the scene yet. But even then, I was aware of a broader world, one that bustled to life outside the door of our apartment building in Ravenswood. It had its own language, the one my father used at the grocery store, Dominic's. The lady at the cash register would offer these words to my father, and amazingly, he would hand a few back, together with a small rectangular note that he would rip out of what looked like a leather-bound book. On it, he would write something, his hand darting across the pale blue paper with hesitation, as if he had to think first before committing the ink to the complicated set of loops and crosses and dots that I would one day learn spelled his name. I called this... Dominic's Mal, or the Dominic's Talk. It was the same language they used inside the TV when Halmoni and I watched Sesame Street or the A-Team, but it was hardly relevant to me. I never had to speak with the cash register at Dominic's or the children on Sesame Street or the scary-looking man with the mohawk and tattoos, Miss Totti. And then, my very own parents decided it was time to erect the Tower of Babel in our quiet little home in Skokie, Illinois. They sent me to school. I soon discovered that everyone, including the bus driver, teacher, and all the other students, spoke the Dominic's language and that I was the only one who didn't. That first day was an awakening of sorts, a lesson in not just the ABCs, but in the world's apathy to what occurred inside the screen door of our Skokie house. They didn't care that inside our home we only spoke Korean. They didn't care that at our kitchen table we ate kimchi and rice and fried seaweed, and therefore that's what my Halmoni packed for lunch that day. They didn't care that Halmoni picked out the Songnebok thermal underwear I was forced to wear underneath my long sleeve shirt and corduroys. Instead, they pointed at me gestured at the flowered bit of fabric peeking out from beneath my pants as I tied my shoes just the way Harmony taught me, and they laughed. The explanation was so simple. Harmony made me wear these. Harmony made me this food. Harmony never taught me the Dominic's language. But the words, they were like pebbles filling my mouth, unfamiliar 
cold, indifferent. I spit all of them out when I got home, though, at the one who had failed to prepare me in every way that mattered for the first full day outside the screen door. At Harmony. But they were only pebbles then, and my grandmother was a mountain. My anger would dissipate with a plate of food, a bowl of snacks, an episode of Sesame Street. Harmony would take me to the park around the block and we'd swing as high and as fast as we could while she told me stories about growing up in a home that I assumed looked just like ours, with a park that looked just like mine, with a swing set that would carry her as close to heaven as she taught me to climb. Luckily, the Dominic's language came easily to me. Within a couple weeks, I made friends with the very same girl who'd laughed at my songne book. Her name was Leah. Teacher was nice to me, if a little scary, with her big red toenails and pink lipstick, and eventually, Harmonia even started packing ham sandwiches and Frito-Lays in my Cabbage Patch Kids lunchbox. One day, we were tasked with bringing something for show and tell, so I brought my little Inyang, a doll Amma gifted me with so long ago I couldn't ever remember being without her. She had chestnut brown hair and pigtails, curling eyelashes, and large brown eyes that shut closed when you lay her down for bed. At home, she was my constant companion, my fingerprints tattooed all over her legs and arms and face until she was so dirty, Amma threatened to throw her away. But I wouldn't stand for it. So when teacher told us to bring something for show and tell, I knew I had to show and tell everyone about my very best friend. Only, when I showed her to Leah, she laughed again and used a word I didn't understand. But she's not real. I'd never heard the word real before, but I could understand the contempt that Leah injected into it plainly enough. Whatever real meant, it was something I wanted my doll to be. So I got up in front of my entire kindergarten class in front of teacher, shook my dolly's body in front of them all until her little head nearly popped off as I declared, oh, but she is real. Days later, I would learn what real meant, and I'd wonder if teacher and all my classmates thought I'd lost my mind during show and tell. According to the legend of Babel, God struck down the tower and created multiple languages to foment confusion. In the same fashion, my exposure to English caused a massive shift in our home life. Academic excellence now depended upon my ability to speak the Dominic's language, and therefore, my parents encouraged me to speak English at home, calling me by my American name, Joanne, instead of Sanyang, the first name I ever knew. Maybe they never stopped to think about how quickly Korean would leak out the other side, but in just a couple years, a wedge grew between English-speaking Joanne and my Korean-speaking Harmonies. Losing that closeness with my grandmother's was perhaps inevitable, but still, it was like I'd run away from home and forgot the way back.
That wedge existed between myself and my father, too. Though Daddy was very proficient in English, he studied English lit at Yonsei and was the first one who introduced me to English after all, he had a very thick accent, one that differentiated him from the fathers on TV or those I'd see talking so easily with teacher at school when they came to pick up their sons and daughters. Amma, on the other hand, was different. She not only spoke English perfectly, in my view, but did so just like teacher, just like the other mothers, the ones with their curly blonde hair and press-on-lee nails. As demonstrated by my mother's own origin story, language barriers can have catastrophic, possibly even life-or-death implications. Indeed, as I'm recording this podcast, my mom is anxiously texting me about a friend who recently lost her husband and is in desperate need of a Vietnamese-speaking trust and estates lawyer in Chicago. I literally know not a one. But language barriers at home may also create their own brand of chaos. Multilingual households are not necessarily disruptive. Rather, it's the lack of co-fluency that may, however have unintended consequences. According to one study, parents and children who do not share fluency in English experience dissonant acculturation. According to the theory, possible consequences of dissonant acculturation include decreased parent-child communication, role reversal, e.g. loss of parental authority, and increased parent-child conflict. These consequences, in turn, place children at heightened risk for social and academic problems. I hardly ever spoke to my father. Now, part of this was because my dad, as I've alluded to before, was aloof and seemingly uninterested in his children, which is not entirely atypical of Asian immigrant fathers. But some of it was definitely because even when we did speak, it was so frustrating as my vocabulary continued to outstrip his, I could never tell whether my words landed anywhere with him, and on multiple occasions, his accent was so thick even I had trouble discerning what he meant. Communication for anything beyond the basics? Come pick me up at the side entrance at 6, or my piano lesson got moved to 7 today, or please stop eating my french fries? Seemed utterly pointless. I never discussed things like art, music, or politics with my dad, even though he loved music. He could draw the most beautiful sketches of our backyard and yelled at the news almost every single night. And I certainly never bothered to detail the innermost workings of my heart without having any confidence that the most precious parts of me would actually be understood, much less valued. It seemed safer this way. One of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life was about my dad. We were in the living room of our Skokie house. I can still see the soft shag carpeting my mother picked out, the ugly brown coffee table that Daddy used to study at when he was trying to get a job at the post office. Daddy was in his pajamas, a white t-shirt and white shorts. I was maybe four or five years old, and he hoisted me up onto his shoulders, something I couldn't remember him doing ever in real life. I instantly realized in that way you just know things in dreams that our Skokie house had been infiltrated by monsters, that even though I couldn't see them yet, they would descend upon me and Daddy and overtake us. And it was for this reason that Daddy carried me on his shoulders. 
but I didn't feel safe. I knew my father couldn't carry me for very long, and sure enough, his grip on me began to falter, and I started to slip off his back. I bent my knees, trying desperately to prevent my feet from touching the carpeting as if it had somehow transformed into a sheet of broken glass. Even as I cleaved to my father's small back, I knew that eventually I would have to carry him, that it would be up to me to make sure his feet never touched the ground as I figured out a way to escape because the monsters were coming. The monsters were here. But I'm too small to carry daddy, I said to myself before waking up. When I was in fourth grade, my father lugged an ugly green typewriter into my bedroom. He handed me a small bottle of whiteout along with a fistful of papers. Here, you type this, he said. The papers contained his handwriting. Every single letter perfectly slanted at 45 degrees, every loop uniformly shaped, every cross a perfect hash. But even so, I could see evidence of his hesitation, the way his hand would hover over an empty space for a second or two before he finally pressed the nib of his pen to paper. What was Daddy writing that was so important he'd need it typed up? It turned out he was writing grievance letters to the union boss at work, the U.S. Postal Service. Though I had never used a typewriter in my entire life before, Daddy gave me a quick run-through. Here's the switch to turn it on, here's how you roll the paper into it, and here's what you do when you make a mistake. He then left me alone, and I spent the next few hours typing out one single page of a letter in which my father detailed how much his back was hurting from all the manual labor required of him at the post office. Over the years, I wrote enough letters to fill a book, and in so doing, I not only became very good at typing letters, I grew intimately familiar with things my father never actually talked to me about, how much he hated his job, how hard it was working in an environment that seemed intent on misunderstanding him, treating him as second class, or otherwise dismissing the injuries he sustained while working the night shift. Once, when I ran out of whiteout, I went to the old wooden desk he kept in the family room. Rummaging through the top drawer, I found a roll of stamps, a couple rubber thumb guards, a letter opener that he would wear on his finger like a ring, and breath mints. I knew from reading his letters that his colleagues often complained about his kimchi breath. I grew to hate the sight of my father's shadow outside my door, a sheaf of papers in his hands. Sure, part of it was because I was a bratty, spoiled child, but it was also because I dreaded the helpless rage I would inevitably sink into like quicksand every single time I had to read his words. With every letter, Daddy brought with him the sharp, biting wind of the world outside of our home, one that smelled feral and viciously dispassionate. As I grew older, I silently corrected his grammar, replaced his syntax with more official-sounding verbiage. I like to think, even back then, that those who might assume my thick-accented father was defenseless, dim-witted, or slow would find me on the other end of that assumption. Sometimes, 
I made sure that's exactly what happened. When I heard my father struggling with customer service, the insurance company, the bank, I'd take the phone from him and say, this is his daughter, and yes, I have his consent to talk on his behalf, just to make sure they knew who they were dealing with. Sometimes, they were relieved. Other times, they grew defensive. It wasn't a role I asked for. It was literally shoved into my lap with a stack of papers, and I would be lying if I said there wasn't some part of me that resented my father for putting me in this position, that wondered what it might be like to have a dad like the ones on TV or in the movies we'd like to watch together. The kind that would carry you without ever letting your feet touch the ground. I was walking my dog one night. I lived in a townhouse complex, and though our homes were essentially cheek to jowl, I didn't know many of my neighbors. I tried, however, to be polite, to stay out of anyone's way, to not be that neighbor. You know what I'm talking about. So, on that evening, when I saw a short, blonde woman carrying a big box emerge from the door next to my house and begin walking towards me on the sidewalk that connected our homes, I stepped onto the lawn and pulled my dog with me to get out of her way and mumbled, sorry about that, as she passed. And just as she swept past my shoulder, I heard her mutter, Yeah, I'll give you something to be sorry about. It reminded me of the time this girl in homeroom called me a stubby-legged bitch while walking behind me with her friends on the way to gym. I could hear her, and I knew she wanted me to hear her. In fact, that she wanted me to turn around and start something. I knew I'd regret right then and there in the bowels of Nutra High School. So on that day, despite the burn that flowered inside my belly, I kept walking on my stubby legs all the way to gym class, pretending I couldn't hear a thing. But on that night, with my dog Billy by my side, I turned on my heel and stated quite crisply, Excuse me? Do you have a problem? The petite blonde woman turned around, marched towards me, and said, Yeah, I've got a problem. You people are ruining the neighborhood. Now, by definition, you people couldn't refer to just me. I was by myself, after all. It wasn't my first rodeo, though. I'd heard references to, quote, my people throughout my life, on the playground, in the classroom, even at the office. She was talking about the Korean-American family that moved in just across the way from us. She was talking about my mom and my dad, who also lived in the same townhouse complex. She was talking about the other Korean family that lived by my parents. She continued her indictment of, quote, my people by explaining that all Koreans in our neighborhood were rude and antisocial, including, quote, your father. It never occurred to me to ask her when or how she'd encountered my parents or how she even knew that they were related to me. All I could think of was my dad, his broken English, his tendency to avoid interactions with Americans, not because he was unkind or unfriendly, but because he was embarrassed or conditioned after nearly three decades of colleagues who othered him to believe that life was simply easier when you kept out of their way. I stood there, rooted to the pavement that joined our homes, and looked her squarely in the face as I said, what a racist thing to say, knowing that had she lashed out at my parents directly, they probably wouldn't have even understood what, quote, you people meant, and that even if they did, they may not have known how to respond. It seemed, at some point, I had not only become my father's typist, proofreader, 
and sometimes translator. I had become his voice. In 2021, the U.S. saw a 164% surge in hate crimes against people of Asian descent. At first, I sat on the sidelines, quietly observing the media's coverage of what was happening to Asian Americans. I wondered whether it might be a response to COVID, the rhetoric embodied by the phrase China virus. I grew concerned at the number of elderly Asians that seemed to be targeted, started to dread seeing another mutilated face that looked a bit like my father's as I scrolled through the news each morning. And then, on March 16th, 2021, a man walked into a Korean-owned massage parlor and slaughtered eight people, including six Asian-American women. And the first thing I thought of was my mom and my dad. What if one day it was my dad who came home with blood all over his face, his teeth knocked out of his mouth? What if it was my mom, my 90-pound mom, who was discovered with over 40 stab wounds inside her home? What could I possibly do to prevent this? I called Amma, suggested she pick up some pepper spray for herself and daddy, and she laughed nervously. Amma, this isn't funny. People are dying, I implored. For all her American savvy, my mom couldn't recognize the danger of racism. That people were dying because of the ever-prevailing instinct to dehumanize someone who has a thick accent, smelly food, or the wrong colored skin. Because it's so much easier to inject inferiority into difference than to face our fears. Because it's so much easier to destroy something instead of someone. As I watched the continued coverage of the Atlanta shootings, I repeated the words I said to myself all those years ago in my sleep, but I'm too small. The following day, when it became clear that some wanted to change the story so that it would no longer be about the Asian women who were objectified, dehumanized, and murdered, but about a young white man who had a bad day, I knew that the answer wasn't arming my parents with pepper spray, or even a gun. I thought about all the letters that my dad made me type up for him when I was barely old enough to spell, all the times I had to use my, quote, professional voice with customer service when I was only in junior high, how quickly I had to learn how to read a bank statement or claim adjustment form because my parents needed help understanding them. Yes, it was true that my father and I weren't close, that I'd literally never had a voluntary heart-to-heart with him in my entire life, that there were times when I hated having to be his translator. But as the brutalization of Asian immigrants continued to skyrocket, it seemed that all of these moments specifically equipped me for this challenge, that my parents needed me to brandish my English words like swords, not just to defend them, but to reveal them, to throw off the cloak the world had thrown over them in its rush to hide all the things that made them different. And at the same time, the things that made them human, their struggles, their pain, their grief. To take everything I'd ever felt, everything I'd learned about being different, about having to translate not just those letters, but the entire fucking world for them. 
and make them safe. I know not all of you have had to deal with language barriers in your own home. I just wanted to share my own story, my own experience with growing up in a household where we didn't all speak the same language, and in particular, how that affected my relationship with my father. Hopefully, even if you don't have this exact same experience, on some level, you found it relatable and perhaps provided you with some insight. And now, let's move on to this week's Ask Joanne. As you all know, every week I invite listeners and newsletter subscribers to submit their questions on which they're seeking some objective third-party advice. This week, the vegan accountant asked, I have been following your journey since I accidentally found you on Insta, and then I was hooked on your stories, and I just had to get your book. I was lucky enough to meet you in person and get a signed copy. I plan to use your recipes during our vegan Thanksgiving this year. You truly are a kind soul. My question to you is, when did you discover you had a passion of cooking? And what is one of your favorite dishes you made in the beginning days of vegan cooking? Well, greetings, vegan accountant. Thank you so much for the very kind words. And I'm so happy to hear that you are a part of the TKV community. I am especially thrilled to hear you plan on using my recipes for Thanksgiving. Spoiler alert, I've been working on a few new recipes for the holidays that I can't wait to share with everyone. Stay tuned for more on that. As to your question, when I discovered my passion for cooking, the answer is simple. When I went vegan. Before then, I viewed cooking as something you did to impress your parents or your boyfriend. (laughs) I hardly ever cooked. I was a full-time lawyer, and during my first marriage, my husband was totally okay with McDonald's, Taco Bell, and Popeyes. And to be honest, so was I. If anything, we bonded over our mutual love of fast food. I know, not a good thing. (laughs) Even after my divorce, though, I preferred takeout to cooking, mostly because I viewed it as a hassle, especially if mine was the only mouth to feed. But then, when I went vegan, takeout was no longer a realistic option for me. Not only were there almost no vegan items on menus back then, unless you count french fries and dressing-less salads, There were literally no restaurants that served Korean vegan food. And although my mom was a really good sport and she really tried her best to cook for me without using animal products, she lived 45 minutes away, not to mention the fact that I was a, you know, grown-ass adult. I really didn't want to spend the indefinite future subsisting on salads and french fries, so I kind of had to start cooking. Plus, I was still inspired to impress my (laughs) then-boyfriend. Undoubtedly, the dish I was most proud of making back in those early days was vegan chonggak kimchi, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. This is also known as ponytail kimchi because it's made out of baby radishes, and you keep the greens on the radishes, and they kind of look like ponytails. It was my favorite kind of kimchi, and I was so worried I'd have to give it up when I went vegan because most traditional recipes require fish sauce and shrimp paste. I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating that my fear of giving up kimchi was really symbolic of my fear of giving up my Koreanness. Accordingly, discovering that my own kimchi tasted even better than my mom's (laughs) was quite thrilling. 
but kimchi is a full day's production, so it wasn't something I undertook very often. Now, denjangjige, fermented soybean stew, on the other hand, was on the menu practically every week. It was so easy to make, so hearty and delicious, and best of all, the leftovers often tasted better the next day. It is one of the most popular recipes from my cookbook, and I can't even tell you just how happy I am when I see so many people making a dish that my own mother used to be nervous about sharing with non-Korean people. My husband, the aforementioned boyfriend I tried to impress with my cooking skills, he loves tinjangjige too, and again, that makes me and my mom so happy. The truth is vegan accountant. I didn't grow up learning how to cook at my mother's elbow. I wasn't eager to throw on the apron when I got a place of my own, and I certainly wasn't thrilled about having to cook my own food when I went vegan, believe me. But I was surprised at how much I liked my own food, much better than takeout or even most restaurants. And then, of course, when I started sharing my food, when I saw how much joy it brought people, it became much more than a mere necessity. It became fun, challenging, and sometimes even exciting. I'm not exactly passionate about cooking per se. I'm passionate about feeding people's souls, and cooking has allowed me to do that in a way I never imagined. Hopefully, you'll find plenty of things in your own kitchen to help feed your soul too. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Vegan Accountant, for submitting your question. If you have a question about vegan cooking, about passion, about inspiration, or even about love, make sure to hit the link below and submit your Ask Joanne today. Updates and random things. What am I watching? Well, Anthony is studying to become certified in Italian at the highest possible level, and therefore, we thought it would be fun to watch something in Italian. We previously watched and loved The Trial, a legal suspense thriller, and Subura, a sprawling drama based on a true story about the mafia in Rome. I was in the mood for something a bit lighter, though, so we settled on The Invisible Thread, a film that centers on a young man with two fathers. It touches upon the unpredictability and resulting cruelty of LGBTQ laws in Italy, something that is quite prescient at this time, while exploring more conventional familial strife like infidelity and basic teenaged angst. Overall, it was very cute. It gave me like major about a boy vibes only in Italian. And I loved that movie about a boy. Who didn't love that movie, right? What I'm listening to, in case you missed it, I had the chance to speak with Trace over at Talk with Trace regarding my career, stories, and all things related to TKV. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. What I'm cooking. Well, I had my friend Betty over at Stems and Forks hang out with me this past week, and we cooked up a storm together, including my seasonal take on the viral butterboard that's sweeping across the internet. In addition, we made up a delicious Genovese pesto pasta dish, which has green beans and potatoes, like literally two of my favorite things in the world, some amazing roasted potatoes, I can't ever say no to roasted potatoes of any variety, along with some really good 
tenjang jjigae with potatoes. Are we sensing a theme here, guys? <laughs> All of these things will, of course, be added to the Korean vegan meal planner. Speaking of which, if you've ever gotten tired of asking that daily ritualistic question, what do you want to eat for dinner today? Let me tell you, the Korean vegan meal planner was designed to address that very question because it's the question that I hate asking every single night. The Korean Vegan Meal Planner has over 2,000 recipes to choose from that you can customize for whatever size of family you have, whether it's one, two, three, or even four. It has a full slate of nutritional information if you're watching what you're trying to eat. And of course, I'm adding to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner every single week, like we just talked about with that amazing Genovese pasta dish which again has green beans and potatoes. I mean, like seriously, who's going to say no to that? Anyways, if you want immediate access to this massive catalog of Korean vegan recipes, you can download the app today. It costs what it costs to get like a latte a week. I actually make my own lattes and I'm now going to add that to the meal planner too. So basically the meal planner pays for itself. <laughs> Check it out in the show notes below. Finally, Last announcement for those of you who have French speaking family members, loved ones, or friends, the French version of the Korean vegan cookbook is now available for pre-order in the show notes and will be in bookstores on October 12th. I am so excited about all the different languages that the Korean vegan cookbook is now being translated into like German, Polish, French, and eventually Korean, right? Obviously, it just means that more people across the world are being introduced to plant-based Korean cuisine. And honestly, that warms my heart in a way I can't even describe. All right. Now that updates and random things are over, you know exactly where we are in this podcast, Parting Thoughts. When I was 21 years old, I saved a couple grand from my first job out of college, and I used it to buy my aunt's beat-up old Honda Accord. As my father drove me to pick it up from my aunt's house, he broke the stillness that typified our car rides by saying, I'm a little sorry. I turned from the window to look at him then, his eyes inscrutable as they gazed out into the street ahead of us. Sorry for what? I asked. He shrugged his shoulders, something he did when he was embarrassed or uncomfortable. I'm your father. I should buy you your first car. It was the first time I'd ever heard Daddy discuss what fatherhood meant to him. It was also the first time he confessed feeling inadequate as a dad. My heart splintered for him in this weird, awkward way. Part of me wanted to reach over and put my hand on his shoulder, but I just couldn't. That particular language had never been used between us, and I was unwilling to start. Instead, I reassured him, Oh, Daddy, don't worry. I want to buy my own car with my own money. And that was that. Nearly two decades later, I asked my father if I could interview him for my book, but we were unpracticed at talking and our conversation quickly devolved as it often did. 
I was determined, though, and I told him I would schedule a date during which the three of us, me, him, and Amma, who sometimes acted as a translator for us, would sit down for a couple hours while I mined through the stories from his childhood. But I never got around to it and assumed he'd soon forget. One afternoon, sitting on the L, my phone pinged. I looked down to see an email from my father with an attachment. Must be some letter he received from the bank that he needs me to look at, I thought to myself. But it wasn't. It was a word doc, one entitled, My Dear Jason and Joanne. I opened the document. It started with, Here is my life story as truthful as I can make it. The L ride from River North, which is where my office was at, all the way to the South Loop, which is where I lived back then, is about 19 minutes in total. I was intrigued by my father's email and figured I could get started on the story of his life while on the train. By the time the L dropped me off at my stop, my eyes were swimming with tears. Father-daughter relationships, they can be complicated. This can be exacerbated when your father is an immigrant. The language barrier, cultural differences, these can contribute to making it, yeah, a little difficult to bond in the way that others find to be so easy. Clearly, though, he'd not only fully understood my words, Daddy, I want to hear the story of your life. My words had taken root and grown into a six-paged, single-spaced Word document that he typed up all by himself. Sitting there on the L, I typed out the following email in reply. Daddy, this is a treasure. I had never written anything to my dad fraught with so much emotion. I hit send. You see, some barriers, they're not meant to be torn down. Rather, they're made to be hurdled to ensure you'll always cherish what lies behind them. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a rating and a comment. All of those things mean so much to us. And if there was something about this episode or any other episode of the podcast that you found particularly inspiring, please go ahead and share that with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or even on social media. In the meantime, until next week... I hope you have a lovely and wonderful day.